Hello, I'm Eric Holderman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews and commentaries about all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. This podcast is being sponsored by Unearth, a dynamic field operations platform equipping field responders with simple digital tools to capture in-field damage instantly, tracking incidents and sharing actionable information seamlessly all in one place on any device. Visit unearthlabs.com to learn more. That's U-N-E-A-R-T-H-L-A-B-S dot com, Unearth Labs. Welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. With me today is Mike Harriman, the State Resilience Officer for the State of Oregon. Uh, in this podcast, we'll be learning more about uh, issues that he deals with, uh, not only from the pandemic, of course, but all the other natural hazards that um, Oregon is facing uh, now and in, into the future. Welcome to the show, Mike. Well, Eric, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with uh, your audience and uh, I look forward to learning more about, uh, you know, how the Disaster Zone podcast gets pushed out there so we can share it with folks in the state and in the region. So thank yeah. you again for inviting me. All right, and I, one of the things I tell uh, folks uh, about that very thing. If you like this podcast, I'll say it again at the end, share it on your social media networks. And um, just did one with the state of Texas uh, emergency management chief is the title. And boy, they, they pushed it out. That's, that's going to be a record breaker for a single podcast, I think. But Mike, I, I always like to open up a podcast with someone like yourself who's experienced to get some background on the person being interviewed and how the heck did you end up in emergency management uh, and doing you know, what you're doing now? So what was your career journey up, up until now? How, you didn't start out saying, I'm going to be an emergency manager. So how did you stumble into it, maybe? Well, Eric, that's a great question. I think I, a lot of times I just was the right guy at the right time. Um, you know, I did 22 plus years active duty with the um, United States Army. Stationed uh, a lot of my time in the Title 32 program here in the Oregon. Um, uh, when I retired, I got a job with the state, um, just wanted something to keep me busy. And I joined an agency for within the world of the natural resources. Uh, and then an opportunity came up, I jumped over to public health. So around 2006, um, the public health preparedness program, like many of the programs across the nation, we're receiving a lot of attention from the 2001 anthrax attacks on the East Coast. So our uh, federal partners, CDC in particular, received a, a tremendous amount of funding. And it was kind of a, um, you know, um, a crazy time. And so um, I was asked on an interim basis to step in to be the director of the Public Health Preparedness Program. And that turned into a 10-year uh, job. And I probably would still be in it today if I hadn't been asked to do the, this particular position. But during that period of time, um, we had a, uh, our seismic commission released a report called the Oregon Resilience Plan. 
a 50-year view of how to get the state prepared for a Cascadian subduction zone earthquake and follow-on tsunamis. And but because it was a 50-year forecast of you know things to do really around pre-mitigation and focus area, um, our legislators, you know, they think on a two-year cycle for budgeting purposes. They uh, they punted and created a task force, and I was on the task force for public health, focusing in on the public drinking water system, and being that connection between the drinking water program and and the task force. Um, the task force uh, was ran by the dean of the engineering school from Oregon State, Professor Scott Ashford, and he was very clear. Um, gave a one or two pager report back from the task force, and their number one thing was to create a resilience officer in the governor's office. Um, I did not really pay attention to that. And these are the kind of positions that aren't recruited for where you see a job announcement. It's kind of um, who knows who. And um, there was an individual selected for the position uh, prior to mine. And for some reason, there were some state senators were not uh, thrilled with his background on climate change. And they wanted to make sure the position was more focused on seismic. And um, this individual uh, pulled his name from the application. So in Oregon, the position's in the governor's office, and it's a statutory position that needs to be confirmed by the state Senate. And uh, when I was asked, I and I joke, you know, I mean, it was an honor to be asked, but I think I was about the fifth or sixth person asked um, or considered. And I found out the state fire marshal uh, um, recommended me for the position. And so um, I didn't know anybody really down in the governor's office. Uh, but I, I figured after 10 years of working on public health and building out the preparedness program and the hospital preparedness program and at the public health level, it was, it was a great opportunity. And I was confirmed by the state Senate in May of 2016. And, and that's kind of how, where I landed. Uh, no roadmap other than this 50 year view of the, you know, getting the state ready for subduction zone issues. But um, kind of the first year I just really focused in on who are my stakeholders, you know, connecting dots, um, connecting with state agencies. Uh, um, in the governor's office, I have no state agencies under my portfolio. I can kind of bounce around when needed, and I'll talk more that, about that in the podcast, but that's kind of how I ended up in the position, and, you know, I just feel like it's a, it's a great honor, and it just happened yep. to be the right time, and for me, and I'm glad the governor um, selected me. Yeah, and I, I remember talking to you, um, Mike, shortly after you became the state resilience officer, um, because Oregon is in our portfolio for the organization I, I work for. And uh, I remember you saying, well, I don't know how long this will be, but <laughs> here, here you are, right? Uh, it's, and you're right about your earlier things that you were put into an acting position, your health officer thing, and that, that turned it in, turned into 10 years. So that it's not unusual to have happen when, when you're doing a good job. Um, and now you talked about this a little bit already, but you know, was the governor instrumental in um, having the resilience officer uh, position established or was it all a legislative effort? Hmm. Well, Governor, governor Brown, um, a little bit of history here. She was the Secretary of State, and then when Governor Kitzhopper resigned, then the Secretary of State, um, Governor uh, Secretary Brown, became the Governor Brown at the time. So no, she wasn't directly engaged in that, um, putting it all together. It actually started in 2011, right after the um, the Tohoku earthquake in the northern 
northeast corner up there in Japan when our legislators asked for our seismic commission to do this report. So it kind of drifted between three governors, Governor Kulingoski, Governor Kitzhopper, and then landed with Governor Brown. And then early on in her career, when she became the governor, she had she inherited quite a few things that were happening and um, from um, an active shooter at Umpqua Community College to the takeover to the Malheur Refuge area. When that stuff all kind of settled down, then she focused on some of her internal things and that's when she wanted to, the position was already in statute. So all she had to do is um, nominate somebody and then let the state Senate um, appoint them. Okay. And, I, you know, I had you send me the uh, your job description and uh, we made a pitch because we have annual capital visits that we do uh, uh, for the Center for Regional Disaster Resilience and uh, Pacific Northwest Economic Region. We talked to the then governor's chief of staff, and I'm talking about Washington State, and uh, we just encouraged them, gave them a copy, and said this is a great you know, idea and that how well it's been working in Oregon. We, we never got any traction out of that. But I, I guess the first question people might ask, okay, you got this position, but how do you fit in? It's a policy position in the governor's office. You report to the chief of staff there, um, do you ever have a one-on-one -on -one with the governor herself or how, how's that work? Well, um, I think on the policy side, there are, oh, I'd say about 14 uh, peers in, my, in the governor's office that do policy advisory across the board from natural resources, education, healthcare, public safety, and a few others. Um, so yeah, I had a one-on-one -on -one with governor. She interviewed me for the position. Um, there have been a couple times where she's wanted some additional information around continuity of government activity that I oversee for the state. And I give her updates on that. But in general, um, I'm kind of a, a network connected folks. I do report to the deputy chief of staff. We have two deputies um, and great rapport with, the, with my boss. She's, she, um, I would just put it this way. Uh, I have been pretty blessed and pretty surprised um, about their eagerness to support resiliency efforts. Uh, now, we don't always hit a home run on that, and I can talk about that later during some of our legislation that we've introduced. Sometimes it's worked, and sometimes it, uh, due to walkouts, uh, you know, it doesn't yeah. see the light of day in the part. Um, I'd really like to maybe tell you a story about our shake alert system and how we finally got the funding for that, but that was that was a, a very unique um, opportunity at the time, but you know, a lot of people will tell you they love the idea, but when you try to get um, some sort of policy. So I give testimony a lot of, on behalf of the governor. I have a very good rapport with the public safety policy advisor. I need to because he has the agencies that I deal with and talk to the most, i.e. emergency management, state fire marshal, state police, national guard. So um, when the governor needs you, she'll text you or call you and you know, you, you just go from there, whatever she wants to talk about. So it's a uh, unique, um, but yeah, it's just, and then it's been a little different with COVID. I mean, uh, we have a staff meeting every month and the governor's usually the first one, she's on there for probably the first 15 minutes. And, you know, there are people in the office now I've never met, but I see them on Zoom. And right, right. It's, it's, it's different, you know, especially if somebody comes on board and then, you know, six months later they're leaving because they got a different job and you know, like you really never um, met the person. But 
I'm one of the last, um, I'm one of her senior policy advisors. There's only two other people been in the office longer than I have. So, okay. Good. Yeah. Uh, um, and you're right, this whole virtual aspect, we're looking to have a series of workshops come up in 2022. And we're, we're planning on them being physical workshops with a virtual opportunity, but you just don't know where the pandemic's going to go. But we know we're trying to do interjurisdictional, public-private, multi-jurisdictional, um, multi-discipline work, and doing that remotely versus all in the same room working. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough. Yeah, it is extremely difficult. Yeah. Well, in, in the second half of this podcast, we're going to talk more about where emergency management is located in yeah. Oregon. But for now, I you've been around a while. Have you seen state resilience officers in other states? Um, and are they in the governor's office or located in another department? Um, I know you're not the Lone Ranger, but how many states even have a resilience officer? Ah, uh, man, I'm glad you asked. You know, it was really kind of cool. Last year, about this time, um, was contacted by the Environmental Defense Fund and they were trying to, working with the National Governors Association to do exactly what you just asked, Eric, and try to figure out um, this network of groups. Um, some folks go by the name of Chief Resilience Officer versus yeah. State Resilience Officer, but they've been called Chief and it's not that big a deal. It's just like, you know, it's with, you take it the way it is. Um, what, they, what they did was a series of six workshops, and I did get to finally meet some peers across the, the nation. Um, there's about 13 states that have somebody working as a either chief resilience officer or a state resilience officer like myself. But out of the 13, only four of them that I could find um, have somebody that's in the governor's office and is funded fully. The others are all based on executive orders. So for instance, there's a, a couple states on the East Coast uh, the individual in those positions is already somebody within the cabinet of the governor's office, could be a cabinet level position. And then and that individual, that man or woman gets also the additional duty of chief resilience officer and their primary focus is around climate change. So um, like Colorado was the first and then they, they were moved from the governor's office to another state agency about two years ago. And then we kind of followed suit. And I believe I'm the only one in the governor's office that's 100% funded with general funds. Um, so I do have a small network out there that every once in a while, we are also on additional panels, either for the National Governors Association or, or whomever, just um, talking about the differences and the nuances of our jobs and the hazards we face. Okay, uh, well, that's interesting to see. And, you know, when we were talking to the Washington State Governor's Office, uh, one of the things I stressed, I said, you know, this is just not another title to give someone. Um, for instance, emergency management's in the uh, National Guard. And so you have the commander of the National Guard. It's also the state uh, director of the military department. I said, don't think you know, giving that person another title of chief or state resilience officer does anything. You know, it, you can say you have one, but nothing has changed. You need somebody dedicated full-time and work in the policy level. So I, I just commend the state of Oregon and yourself, Mike, for being able to be productive 
uh, in that position. I think it's true. You know, Eric, I, I did uh, give, uh, give a presentation when the state of Washington was looking at this position for themselves. I believe the insurance commissioner was the overseer of the, of the report for their legislation. And, you know, when I got directly asked, like, I'm a one person with an admin support person that helps me. That's my office. Yeah. And they were talking about an office, a program, or an agency. And, you know, you, when you, if it would have creates an agency, then you're just taking work from somebody else and, and pulling it in there. And that causes sometimes a major ripple effect in a relationship. Yeah. So I appreciate the fact that um, that didn't happen in my position because, you know, there are there sometimes it's good to leave the programs where they're at. And it's just how to connect the dots and network. That's more important for me than overseeing a program individually. Well, okay. <laughs> That's perfect. Set you up for my next question here is, you know, what's your current working relationship with some of those, you'd said the fire marshal office, of the national mm -hmm. guard, office of emergency management. Um, so how do you manage a couple of things and you, you talked about it's, it's relationships and all emergency managers, no matter where you are, generally, I'd say you lead without authority. <laughs> you know, you're not able to order things. So it's a facilitation style, but how do you manage not to trip over one another and what you do and what they're doing? Well, let's see. Uh, well, prior to coming into this position in May of 2016, um, I pretty much knew, already had a relationship with these folks, uh, with the Director of Emergency Management. Uh, the State Fire Marshal at the time was the Deputy State Fire Marshal. Um, I think in, in all the agencies, I had a really good turnover. I was the lead uh, for the uh, what we call the Emergency Support Function 8 for public health and medical services. So, you know, doing exercises or real world events, that's kind of how you, you make your name and, and how you respond to that. Um, not having any agencies has been a blessing, but also sometimes it's a curse because, you know, you really can't reach into an agency when you're in the governor's office and micromanage stuff. You got to let things happen, but um, staying in contact um, and, and then during those bad days. And I, I think from March, April, May of 2020, the state, when we mobilized the entire enterprise level for on the executive branch and pivoted to focus on COVID, uh, it did strengthen some relationships. Uh, but, you know, the best thing you can do is stay in the game and stay communicating with them and be upfront about them. And really, it showed some areas where we were strong in and areas where we made uh, major mistakes. Uh, and then also that kind of led to uh, our after actions. And so we recommended myself, the adjutant general and the director of emergency management uh, recommended that we start a, an after action campaign. And we started that early. And um, so we didn't give it to any one state agency. I was the overseer of it. So I wrote the contracts, uh, but our department administrative services um, found the vendor uh, and it's been great. We've out of the five AARs for COVID, we've had four complete. We did an AAR on our 2020 Labor Day fires. We did one on the February uh, ice storms of this year. And so all those things bring us back together about how to correct those actions. And so I lean on the relationship I have with these agency directors. And, and sometimes, you know, um, there could be some hurt feelings about something that happened um, or we didn't follow the system the way somebody thought the system was built. And, you know, I really just think it's important to be open about it and to address it. And I've, I've been kind of the referee in some ways. Um, other times I've been 
a facilitator to, to have those conversations, to set the table up and then just kind of like fade away. You know, relationships, Eric, are, they're either high maintenance or they're low maintenance. The high maintenance ones are the hardest because you constantly have to stay in, in the loop on them. And the low maintenance ones are some you might've talked to for three months. And it's when you do finally talk to them, it's like you were talking to them yesterday. So that's something I'm pretty good about in the job. And, and, I, and I have the luxury and the latitude to, to use my judgment of, of when, to, when to put my foot into something or when to recommend to the governor and the chief of staff, hey, we should not go down that path. We should do this instead of that. So, um, you know. Okay. Yeah, and then they're the ones making that decision. It's not you. Well, you got to set the table for them. Uh, where you sit at the table is not that important, but you do need to be able to to give them the pros and cons to some of the things that could happen to them. Okay. Well, I, again, I, any emergency manager that's been around a long time will always say the key to a successful program or that is the relationship piece. I, I, I think also having the relationships you did in place before it became the state resilience officer really helped significantly versus somebody new coming in trying to learn. Yeah, if somebody would have came in from out, of, if they had hired somebody from out of state, it would take them 18 to 24 months to really kind of know their system and get build relationships right. during that period of time when, you know, things are hitting the fan. Um, that's like, you know, you don't hand out your business card when you first show up. So, right, right. Yeah, it's been a blessing to be, to have some continuity with uh, these really professional folks that I've, I've had the honor to work with. Okay. Well, what we're going to do now is take that break that I said was coming up. Okay. And when we get back, we'll be talking more about how the organization actually works within uh, the state of Oregon and some of their disaster history, uh, recent history to start out with. So uh, we're going to take that quick break for this message and we'll be right back. Every natural disaster is unique, but in a dynamic situation, Unearth's map-based platform helps manage complex logistics, conduct rapid damage assessments, and connect everyone to the data they need. Learn how Unearth's cloud-based software can reduce risk and response times for your team at unearthlabs.com, U-N-E-A-R-T-H-L-A-B-S, and we are back. Um, we're talking with Mike Harriman, State Resilience Officer for the state of Oregon. And Mike, uh, one of the things is Oregon has had some pretty significant recent disasters. I'm thinking the wildfires you had, certainly the heat waves that hit in 2021. I'm sure there may be some others there, but what, and, and you mentioned COVID isn't like those things were on top of COVID during the pandemic. So tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, I would say probably starting in January, 2020, uh, we had a, uh, in our Northeast portion of our state, you know, got hit with some severe weather and flooding. Uh, our, uh, one of our Native American tribes, the Umatilla tribe was impacted in that county. So we had some flooding issues and we're in the governor's declaration and during that period of time, the, our public health agency was monitoring the COVID situation across the United States. And, you know, they had done a health intelligence briefing. Which basically, they gave you kind of an insight on the epidemiology side of it. Well, like, what was going on? When we had a rule, uh, when we got our first positive case, then we would activate our public health uh, emergency management system. 
And then um, it just kind of rippled from there. So these, the COVID seems like, you know, it just never goes away. And so one of the reasons we wanted to capture data with the after actions was really to make sure that we, if there was something that really needed to be fixed, great, let's address it. But if we were doing something right, let's also lean into that. So during the COVID period of time, you're right, Eric, in uh, September Labor Day fires, we saw that coming. We just didn't know how bad it was. I mean, the weather service was pretty spot on uh, for that and for the ice storm in February. So, you know, now here's the region getting a five-day heads up. What are you going to do in those five days to prepare your community? Um, the fire itself, though, was so bad. It's, you know, the worst I've ever seen in, in the state of Oregon. When you see for 10 days, you know, your sky is nothing but orange and you can just feel and taste smoke in the air. It was, it was terrible. Um, between that, um, we always thought we were going to catch a break, but something else happened. And so, you know, the June 2021 heat wave really did catch us off guard. I mean, we knew it was coming. But, you know, um, at the local level, uh, they got caught off guard with, you know, not having enough shelters. Yeah. Um, I think people were still, we're a year into COVID then, you know, people were a little, we had just came out of the unmasking thing. The governor had lifted the indoor and outdoor, you know, not having to wear a mask. And and, and this is uh, the heat wave. Yeah, then the heat wave hit and it was late June of that year, of, uh, of this year. And, and then the Delta variant popped up. So boom, boom. Um, we, the governor wanted some immediate results from the heat wave. So she tasked the Office of Emergency Management to do a, a hasty after action, which they, they did, uh, working with the big county in Oregon, Multnomah County, who were most of the deaths were from that. We lost about a little over 100 people from that. And, and you know, the wildlife fire in 2020, the Liberty Fire, I'm sorry, we lost nine Oregonians. We didn't lose any in the winter storm. Um, you know, due to the storm, but having 100 people die in a heat wave, which is somewhat, uh, we could have prevented that. Um, so we're really focusing in on that going forward with locals, making yeah. sure they do. And I, I think that's a great example of the impact of climate change, not necessarily the heat, but the, the ramifications of it are just totally unknown. I mean, if we were in Texas or Alabama, they would have been much better prepared for extreme heat wave than us in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, we, we, um, we have what Oregon's been in a drought probably the last three out of five years. So we were in drought, we were in drought at the time too. So we were very worried right after the 2020 fires, you know, what was happening. We saw more fires in 2021, but our fire marshal and our Department of Forestry did a lot more proactive uh, outreach and task force uh, preparing for the fires, uh, putting them out with the, you know, we had thousands of thousand fires and our firefighters put them out if they were, you know, a lot of them were 10 acres or smaller, which didn't make the news, right? So the big ones make the news, but not, but, you know, it was just like a one, two, three punch. And um, still to this day, that heat wave really stung us. And we are doing our best to focus on that going forward with pre-mitigation stuff for for the communities to, you know, go after either brick dollars, you know, building resiliency infrastructure communities, or some sort of post mitigation funding that comes down from FEMA. Okay, all right. So, I, you know, kind of going back to this, uh, all these events, I think help precipitate that review, as you said, after action report, looking at these various events and, and the movement there. One, one of the things I found is that you know, I was in Washington State Emergency Management Division when it moved from one 
uh, is in at the time community trade economic development to the National Guard. And uh, a lot of times, and there's alignment in the National Guard, you may know, I mean, it, I remember I've looked at multiple times in past history and average is about half the states. It might be a little bit lower than that now. But um, and sometimes it's hard for an agency to give up something like that because one of the reasons emergency management is in the National Guard is because people think about disasters and the response aspect. And personally, I think the emphasis ought to be on the mitigation aspect, the disaster resilience comes from what you do before, not the response. I don't, how, how did the National Guard work through that change? I, I take it they ended up supporting it, certainly. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, it was, I think it, it had we not had COVID and the wildfires and things like that, we probably wouldn't have seen the legislation to to move the Office of Emergency Management out, make them their own independent agency starting next July, July 1st of 2022. Um, the National Guard was on board. And I, I, you know, when we were doing our after actions and when we mobilized the enterprise, um, it, it, was, it was very important that the governor have access to the director of emergency management or him to key members of the governor staff, myself, um, the public safety advisor, and the chief of staff. A uh, very you know, robust time that during that February, March, and April of 2020, we activated our type one and type two teams um, to really provide that incident command background for a catastrophic event, because we felt like it was very important to, to do this. Um, the adjutant general was in the discussions the entire time. Um, when the legislation came about, uh, it took about 14 amendments you know, to, to get it right. It was introduced by our House Veterans and Emergency Preparedness Committee um, and myself and the public safety advisor worked hand in hand with our legislative director to make tweaks to it that we could support and recommend to the governor. Um, because it wasn't in the governor's budget, uh, you know, the agencies have a fine line about how to do stuff. So just give them the right. information to the legislators. Uh, I would say because of COVID, this was the unique part. I think there was a lot more people involved in this discussion that could actually zoom into the legislative, provide the legislative committee uh, comments and things like that. Um, we did most of the work behind the scenes. And in the nutshell, I was, I was, uh, I was in public health when they moved the national, when they moved the emergency management from the state police and put right. in the national guard. I was in favor of that at the time. And and I just think it's we've evolved now where the agency needs uh, additional resources. So we did put in the governor's bill, we about 30 FTE um, they, that passed. Um, I would say the Office of Emergency Management now has doubled in size in, within a year. And that's pretty remarkable. And handling all the post and pre-mitigation issues that they're facing, they went from a two-person mitigation shop to I think now a nine-person mitigation shop. And they got liaisons out in the field like other state agencies, finally, instead of a liaison sitting at a desk in Salem. Um, but I'll and talk a little bit more about that bill. It was, it's, a, it's pretty exciting to see, and it's, there's a lot of nuances to it besides just that office. Yeah, and I just, again, compliment you and the state on that, in that I remember when Rick, with the mitigation efforts being talked about, um, I either read this or I heard it directly that Oregon had said, hey, we, we don't have the state resources in our Office of Emergency Management to handle 
uh, a program of this size. So now, I, rather than getting knee deep in this and help yelling uncle, I, I think you guys really have proactively helping with that. Even nine people, I think, would be challenged. And uh, the other thing I like that you heard, uh, you you talked about, I heard was the um, putting out regional people in the field. And these are the folks that who can help smaller counties with their planning, their exercising. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. and, and, and all that. And that's, you know, again, we have some very small counties in Eastern Washington, Eastern Oregon that have part-time people, maybe it's a sheriff's deputy, that type of thing. So I, th I think that's, again, terrific that you're doing that. And we've seen other states do it with great dividends. So. Well, you know, Eric, you did mention, we did go to the, the National Governors Association and then we went to NEMA uh, and got information they, from their reports that they do on the states to determine, you know, because our legislators, our governor wanted to know exactly what the model we were in with the OEM in the military, how many other states were doing that. Um, some were, uh, I'd say maybe 13 states. Now, okay. Yeah, now. But there was, a, there was a, several that were still in public safety, you know, with state police or whomever. Right. And then there were some in um, standalone agencies, some states that standalone. So, you know, there was some good models to look at. And I think where we landed in Oregon is, is exactly where we need to be these days. And, and it also, the bill address, I'll, if I can, a little bit, it um, talks about our Homeland Security Council. It creates a couple of advisory com uh, committees and it also directs the state fire marshal uh, to do a study for them to be taken from the pulled out of the state police and be a standalone agency themselves. Okay. So let's question on this, uh, you know, where will the office of emergency management going to be? It's a separate department or you call it agency office uh, under the governor's office. How's that mechanically going to be? Uh, it'll be a standalone agency. It'll be known as the uh, Oregon Department of Emergency Management, the, their nickname, they've already nicknamed themselves ODO, you know, ODEM or something like that. You know, it's, sometimes it's, it's I, I usually let the agencies do that. So the agency will be a standalone. Um, right now, they will not actually report to the governor. Um, they're, they're being a separate agency. They'll have some shared services with our Department of Administrative Services on, on some things around uh, IT and HR. Uh, be supported by our state data center as well. Um, you know, there. And Andrew Phelps is the director. Andrew will will have access to the governor like he has before, but um, you know, he won't be in the discussions with us when we're doing policy stuff within the governor's office. That's still separate. So in some ways, he'll be treated just like another state agency on the executive branch. But um, he will also be kind of close at the hip because of the, the importance of his office and or not his department and the fact that we've been from one disaster to another, which just seems like the rest of Governor Brown's tenure, she's got about a year left. She just wants to focus on preparedness, uh, some racial justice and some healthcare and education issues. And, and uh, I think it's exciting for the Department of Emergency Management. It's long overdue and, you know, and uh, I think it's exciting to see now having a big influx of staff and then already having some, uh, uh, some systems that are already in place. We do need to figure out that where there's gonna be some rub, uh, where there might be some overlap and just make sure quote liaisons in the field are all on the same sheet of music when the state's doing some uh, enterprise level. Right, right. Uh, it, they can't be out there freelancing, right? Oh, no, no, and, no, no. 
And um, how about, how do you see this? And anything that's going to change about your personal position, o, OEM or ODO, uh, being in the governor's office? How's that? No, I think it's just one more thing that brings us, uh, continues to bring us close. You know, myself, um, the public safety policy advisor, Constantine Severe, and Andrew Phelps from our emergency management, the three of us talk a lot. So, you know, they provide us updates on where they're at on their uh, moving from an office to an agency. Um, we troubleshoot things for them, but we also provide some insight to legislative stuff that's coming up. Like we have a short session in Oregon 35-day session starting in February. Uh, you know, the, we'll probably see some bills introduced by legislators that, you know, could be more directed at the agency. Well, Andrew will check with us on the policy side. I don't see anything changing, you know. Even if uh, Andrew was to take a job somewhere else and someone, a new person came into that position, it'd be my, I, I think my role is to help them be successful, but also to make sure they got, they feel like they got the voice. If they really do come across something Maybe there's some issue between the state and FEMA Region 10 or somebody back in headquarters in DC for the governor's office steps into that and takes that heat off this agency and, and deals with them directly with the okay. feds. And I, I know you said um, they're adding 30 some positions and this is all happening in July of 2022, right? Well, the positions they, they've already started, they got the approval to hire them as soon as the bill was signed. So okay. I would say 30 is the low number. They might have also got a few limited duration positions. So they're in actively been hiring and putting people. But when they become an agency, a standalone agency, that's the first of the July of 2022. Okay. Uh, well, two things. One, uh, how many, what's the, uh, I always talk about Oregon that really had a pretty small emergency management agency. Um, I want to say it used to be like 25, 30 years ago. But <laughs> so what, what are they at now with the additional? Oh, well, I think prior to the bill, uh, they were right around 45, 44 people. I think okay. after the, the governor's bill, uh, the governor's budget went through in 2019 or in this last session, long session. And then also the, the House Bill 2927 that actually reorganized them. I think they're they're going to be just around ninety people when it's when it's said. Okay. Well, listen. I'll pass on to Andrew that um, I I post jobs openings on my blog, sure. so uh, I haven't seen anything come across from Oregon on that. So tell him have his HR or whoever's doing that <laughs> pushing the notices out. I'll I'll put them on my blog. Yeah, it'd be great. That'd so you great. get as good of people as possible. Okay, so um, yeah, I've just seen Oregon's approach to seismic safety and emergency management to be much more progressive than that of Washington State. I, I, I tell that to Washington State legislators all the time. And, and yeah, but we have not done much in the state. So what, what do you attribute the excellent support and attention that seismic safety, safety has had in Oregon? Uh, well, in my job, I am the policy advisor to the Seismic Safety Commission, known as OSPAC, O-S-S-P-A-C. Uh, and, you know, besides them putting together the 2013 Oregon Resiliency Plan, I wanted them to focus on a few other things. So uh, we got some legislation in the 2019 session to give them some direction. Um, they wrote a report about earthquake insurance. Um, for the state. They wrote a report about mass care, uh, mass displacement after Cascadia. And those recommendations were really important. 
What I can tell you, Eric, that's been somewhat really kind of cool, and they also did a report on our critical energy hub in Northwest uh, Portland. We call it the CEI hub. That's where all, all of Oregon's fuels out. That's like kind of, that's our Achilles heel in a, in a big event. But what was important about their reports and their recommendations, they weren't jumped on immediately. So these reports were done September, 2018. And then in October of 2018, we wrote a white paper for Governor Brown and then she beefed it up and it's called her 2025 vision. In that was to you know get 250,000 households two-week ready, support the two-week ready campaign, support incident management training and our staging bases around our airports. Now, the fires, the, uh, the Labor Day fires of 2020, our Department of Human Services, uh, their emergency management went from three people to about 15. They really got a lot of phoned, uh, funding and focus because of the event around mass care. And it's taken off really, really good. Um, and they got resources to do that. They went back to that 2018 report and looked at those recommendations and they're addressing those recommendations for mass care, not only for wildfire, but also for seismic safety uh, or for any all hazard event. And that's the beauty of the reports. And so, you know, those were kind of chipping away. Um, we did ask for some funding in the 2019 session to to not be the weak link on the West Coast between Oregon and California when it came to the shake alert system, the earthquake early warning system. Oh, trust me, Washington State was the weak link and still is. You know, <laughs> you know we were in the middle. So, you know, uh, what we did though, we, we didn't get any funding. Uh, our, um, there was a walkout on the Republican side of the Senate. So a lot of bills up in ways and means never saw the light of day. And then in, two years ago in the short session, we introduced it again. Once again, there was a walkout. So none of the bills got passed. So in this last session, we we had we were worried about it. But the governor did a couple um, um, special sessions. Like today is a special session in Oregon for um, for homeowners and evictions and things like that. There was one in July of 2020, and it was around COVID. And we had the green light to ask for bonding authority to build out our shake alert system. And our legislators did approve it. We got approved 7.8 million dollars in bonding that we're gonna sell in March of next year, of this, yeah, 2022. And the University of Oregon already has the roadmap of where all these monitors are gonna go that's been approved by the USGS. It's part of the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network, you know, and I, uh, we think it'll be all built out by 2023. And at the same time, we're starting slowly to uh, adopt, um, you know, alerting on our cell phones. And so, you know, it's pretty exciting. We do need some funding. We're gonna ask for a little bit of money in February to help us do more outreach and education about it. But, you know, I, I think it's, Oregon's gonna become the strong link between the three states and, and really have an outstanding uh, seismic alerting program. We're working with the private sector on how to safeguard their workforce and safeguard their infrastructure. Okay, and, um, you know, I, I've written about this so many times, you can have a great system uh, but the Achilles heel on that is actually having people get the warning yeah. <laughs> and then act on the warning, right? So the public education campaign aspect is uh, vitally important there also. So Eric, we, fought, we saw in our wildfires in 2020, um, the fires were moved so fast, many of the communities in the rural part of the state didn't have an alerting system where their tower got burned down. Uh, quickly and they there was a lot of door-to-door -door stuff by our first responders that saved a lot of lives but since then the state itself on the department of administration we signed an enterprise contract with a company um, for everbridge 
and to do our alert, a warning and notification. So 34 of our 36 counties are uh, moving to use that for internal stuff. Uh, we have probably 25 state agencies already on board and it's, it's we're, we're like tomorrow, we're gonna test it for the governor's office. We do some um, internal testing just to make people are comfortable. What will alert look like if it comes across their phone? You know, we, we remind them it could be like an Amber alert uh, but it's also like we could be giving you a warning that, hey, in 90 seconds, you know, we're going to feel the, the S wave of a shake coming our way from an earthquake and from starting in southern Oregon. Ultimately, you're right. We need to really do a, a better job of educating and work with our community based and our faith based organizations who are really connected to their communities of the importance of this notification system. Well, I this has been great, uh, Mike. So far, any final thoughts you want to share with our listening audience today? No, I do. Well, just uh, always, you know, like, <clears throat> Eric, this has been a, um, my first podcast I've ever done. So thank oh, you. Oh, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I feel pretty comfortable. I didn't have to get dressed up for it since we're only doing audio. But I, I would just, I'd say thanks for doing what you're doing. I know you've been at this a while. And, and I think, you know, the importance of just continue talking about it, even when you have a bad day. You know, you need to address that, what you did, and take responsibility for it. Uh, now, it's just, you know, my, my comment, my saying for folks is stay safe, stay focused. And so, I, you know, that's, that's part of our jobs when we're doing public service. And, you know, it's just an honor to be in the governor's office and working on this stuff. And I appreciate you reaching out and letting me talk about it today. Okay. Well, Mike, uh, it has been great having you as a guest in our collective efforts towards disaster resilience can take many different paths as, as just your career showed from that standpoint. But for the state of Oregon, it's been establishing a, a resilience officer position, the governor's office, and we've learned uh, a lot of the benefits of those actions here today. And finally, a reminder to everyone to be safe. Think about what you can do today to become personally better prepared for the next disaster. And if you like this Disaster Zone podcast, please share a link with it to your social media contacts. Thanks for listening and bye-bye. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.